0: Success in Web three is five thousand holders, you know, ten thousand holders. Like it's it's not very many people. It's a really small ecosystem. And success in, I mean, even even minor success, like in television, like if you're not getting a million viewers a week, you get canceled, right? Like right, right. It, it's a much different bar. And and a real success is getting you know three million viewers, five million viewers, ten million viewers, and. The goal here was like, how do we build something and launch it in Web3 that is ready for prime time, that's ready to go out and be put onto a service and entertain people who either don't know or do not care that it was ever a Web3 project.
1: You're listening to Lights, Camera, Crypto, the podcast exploring all things entertainment and Web3. I'm your host, Stephen Ladden, and this week our guest is Bryce Anderson. Bryce is a film and television producer, and he talks about his career ascension, rising as an assistant at United Talent Agency, where he used to trade Bitcoin at his desk on the side, to working at Warner Brothers Studios, to being the first hire at Clubhouse Pictures, where he currently works and has worked on an incredible slate of films, such as Netflix's Bright, starring Will Smith. And Itonia, starring Margot Robbie, all sort of culminating with his current Web three project, Omega Runner. Let's dive in and see what it's all about. Bryce, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: How did your journey start? Did you always know you wanted to be in entertainment? What was sort of the the early path?
0: Yeah, you know, I wanted to be in entertainment really early. Um, I did a lot of theater when I was a child Um, and particularly like tech theater. So lights, sound, set design, construction, that kind of stuff. And when I was about 16, I got a job working at one of the amazing theater, one of the best theaters actually in Minneapolis. Um, And I spent the summer working alongside a crew of people that were, um, you know, just just awesome that were, you know, they were probably 45 years old and they had much better titles than me and they made more money than me, but we effectively had the same <laughs> job. And I <laughs> at 16 years old I went, "Oh, oh, this pond is not big enough. I need to go. I need to go work somewhere larger." Um and at the time, the thing that I loved about working in plays is I loved you know, I loved the I loved two aspects really. The first aspect was I loved the writing. Um I loved looking in the source material and breaking it down and sort of designing how it's going to be put on when it's put on stage um and the second thing that i loved is you know i was working in this uh company at the time that would do uh probably about six plays a year and that meant that even while you were working on one play you were prepping for the next play you were planning Mm -hmm. and you sort of had this like the continuation of what the long-term program was going to be and Um, I loved that aspect of having one project and you work on it and you put everything you have into it. And then, um, you know, you find yourself working on a new project and you put everything you have into that and you find yourself working on a new project. And I loved that sort of turnover. And that led really directly to movies, um, which, which work much in the same way. Um, and I knew I wanted to work with writers and I knew I wanted to work, uh, you know, in Hollywood at the highest levels and in the biggest pond. And so that led me to, um, I went to film school and then at my last semester of film school, I actually came out to LA to work an internship and write a thesis at the same time. And those internships then directly led me to United Talent Agency. And, um, I spent two years at UTA, which, uh, is really like the, it's the grad school of the film world. Um, you get paid nothing and you deliver mail like literally start in the mailroom um deliver mail you start covering desks as an assistant um and when you're lucky enough you eventually land a desk of your very own that you you know stay on usually for somewhere between six months and a year so i landed a desk in the mp lit department which are the people that represent writers and directors for feature films and uh you know While I was there, uh, the boss that I worked for covered Warner Brothers, and that meant that he was responsible for every single Warner Brothers project um, and and making sure that the agency had all of the most up-to-date information on every single project at WB. And that's not just the projects that are in production, it's also the projects that are in development. So any project that they're looking for a writer on, any project that they're looking for a director on, um, he was responsible for knowing all of that information. and I spent a lot of time talking to the executives at Warner brothers. So when an opportunity opened up at Warner brothers, it was a pretty direct phone call that led to me getting hired there. Um, and I went and I worked at WB for um, almost two years, worked on an incredible run of projects while I was there. I think I did like 14 movies into production off my desk. Um, wow. while I was there, which is just like a huge, huge amount of volume. And we're looking at yeah. like, it was like, I did like a Batman, Mad Max Fury road, um, I worked on like Black Mask. I worked on that like King Arthur uh, movie. I worked on The Man from U.N.C.L.E. Some of these just like, you know, movies all over the spectrum. And um, that was really, really, uh, it was a, a great crash course in sort of that, you know, that sort of parallel thing that I was talking about earlier, which is like, what's it like to throw yourself into a single project and then move to another project and throw yourself into a new project and then move to another project? Um, and it was really like a a really gratifying, um, mix of what it was that I was looking for, but it was still, um, you know, I was, I was working as an assistant, which is always sort of a, a bit of a drudgery role. And, um, I knew I wanted to work, um, more closely with the art and more closely with the, the creatives. And so, uh, I started looking around at, new opportunities. And an opportunity came to me that was just really amazing, which was um, this young guy who was like 32 at the time, I think his name is Brian Unklis. And he had been working for a woman named Nina Jacobson for a long time. And he was responsible for the Hunger Games, um, as well as like he worked on the Diary of a Wimpy Kid series. Mm-hmm. And he worked on, um, you know, Crazy Rich Asians, and he was looking to start a new company. Um, He was going to go off on his own, you know, the Hunger Games were wrapping up and he had a lot of goodwill from that experience. And he was like, okay, it's time to go somewhere and put my name on the door. And so he stepped out and uh, founded something called clubhouse pictures. And along with his uh, he brought one person with him from his old company. And then I was the first outside hire. Um, And I was the first employee. And it was just the three of us for about three and a half years. And in that time we made bright, which was the, um, First, like major motion picture at Netflix with Will Smith. Mm-hmm. And we made um, I, Tanya, with Margot Robbie, which is her first, like, really lead role. And we made um, actually <laughs> the smallest movie that Netflix has ever funded directly um, <laughs> a great little movie called First Match. And that was sort of the early impetus of that company. You know, we went on, we did Project Power with Jamie fox we did uh, The Watcher with Ryan Murphy, we did. Uh, you know, Birds of Prey at DC with Warner Brothers um, with Margot Robbie again. So we've, you know, really been around and had a really good run of it for the last few years. But simultaneously to me going on this journey, if you go all the way back, sorry, I realize this is a long, the long version of the story, but if you go all the way back to um, my UTA days, I started trading Bitcoin on the side, just like while I was sitting at my desk. Um, mm. And that was sort of this hobby that I'd had for a while. And I, you know, I, I did it through. 2013, and then I doubled my money in 10 days, and then I wrote it most of the way back down and came out just about even. Um, it was a really good learning experience. And then, you know, 2016, 2017 happened, and I was right there at the right time, which is really fun and exciting. And then, you know, watching it all happen again in 2020 was really fun and exciting. And the thing that really kind of blew my mind in crypto is I'd been in this ecosystem for a long time, but it was when I saw, um, the Beeple sale happen. And mm. you know, I'd known about NFTs, but I'm not really a sports person, so I, I didn't ever really dive into Top Shot. But watching the people sale happen was the first time when I said, oh, wait, this job that I have, which is cultural prospecting, and this hobby that I have, which is crypto-based, are finally intersecting in a way that um, I, I had never predicted. I didn't expect it to happen the way that it happened. But suddenly I found myself in this place where I was watching these crypto people create culture. And I was saying, oh, my God, look, they're creating culture. But, you know, I work in an industry that creates art and the culture. Um, and there's, there's a couple of pointers that they can make over here. And then simultaneously, I saw the Hollywood side of things go, oh, my God, look at how much money people are making in that crypto world. We should go try that also. And you see, you know, like the Matrix NFTs and you see the Space Jam NFTs and you see all these different sort of ovations Hollywood has made to the Web3 space. And, you know, I was sitting there watching that happen. And going oh my god what are they doing you know like they don't understand crypto they don't they don't understand what they're doing at all and so i found myself in this weird place where i was kind of the center of this venn diagram um, that could really speak both languages and that was the impetus for you know diving into this project
1: how does that then influence your next project
0: i was watching these projects go and it's like okay i can see where this i can see where this project goes and becomes hello kitty i can see where this project goes and becomes sort of a you know lifestyle merchandising uh streetwear brand like that makes sense but a story you know gaming you know television film was always sort of a reach it was like i'm not going to count you out but it's going to be a lot of heavy lifting and a lot of sort of retrofitting work backwards from an image sort of work which is the hardest kind of work to do if you're trying to make good creative so um you know, we started talking about this inside of our company. We were like, okay, well, this, this world is obviously fruitful and this community understands the potential of this world, but there is some naivete about what it takes to really make a movie. And that doesn't just mean the physical production that goes into the movie, but also the the, the concept production that goes into the movie and the amount of design and the amount of planning that it takes to really execute something at that level. and." We started talking about it. We were like, okay, well, if we were going to do it, what would it look like? And there was this idea that we were kicking around at the same time, which is the idea for Runner, which had started as a conversation between us and uh, the head of merchandising at Netflix, who um, was basically, he was talking about the Cars franchise. Mm -hmm. And the Cars franchise is a wild, uh, wild example because um, people don't realize this, but it's one of the most valuable properties in the world. Um, they do something like three billion dollars a year in merchandising sales. Really? Uh, yes, they've done. It's like they've cleared thirty billion since its launch. Um, wow! And and you think about like Avatar, right? Makes two point seven billion at the box office, and it's headlines forever. No, Cars like Car <laughs> Cars is. <laughs> Crushing them, not the box office necessarily. Uh, the box office is in some ways a loss leader, right? It's, it's a necessary piece because it brings in the fans and it makes people love this property and it's an advertisement in some ways for this larger ecosystem of gaming and merchandise and clothing and all these other sort of like uh, verticals that exist. Um, And it's incredibly powerful. And that is really like, that is, that is the engine of the Disney brand, right? People think about it as entertainment and it is in some ways an entertainment company, but it's really a merchandising company that has an incredible, you know, imagination department. and the conversation started there. And it was like, what, what can we create that can go on and become one of these properties that we think of that are a little bit amorphous? Think about like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Think about Pokemon, right? It's like, is it a television show? Is it a trading card game? Is it a, you know, is it a, is it a merchandising vehicle? Is it a video game? Like, what is it? Is it a comic book? Like, they're, they're kind of all of these things and none of these things at the same time, right? The IP really transcends whatever the original thing was, right? And that's, mm. that's a really unique place for a property to be because it allows you to go explore all of these different verticals and it allows you to really reinvent the property year after year after year. Like when people created Pokemon, they had no idea that Pokemon Go was going to exist, but it is a strong enough property that that can, that can happen, right? They had no idea that Detective Pikachu was going to happen, but it's a strong enough property that that sort of reinvention can happen. And the conversation we had was like, okay, like, what does it look like not just to design a single television series, right? Not just to design like one season or five seasons of a TV show, but design something that is a TV show and is also gaming and is also a comic book and is also a merchandising vehicle. What does that look like? And one of the things that we did is we brought in uh, this guy, Cedric Nicholas Troyan, who's an amazing, uh, visualist. We'd been, he was directing a movie with us called Kate. and We were spending a lot of time together on set between Thailand and Japan. And, um, we started talking about this cause he's also just like, he's, first of all, he comes from the VFX world. Um, and the VFX world is very similar to the animation world. He's an animator before that. Um, he's an Academy award nominated VFX supervisor and, um, just a huge anime head. Like the man's got a Totoro tattooed on his arm, and um, you know, we started talking to him about this, and he he, he thought it was really interesting because we knew design was going to be like a huge element of of the of the concept. And then we started talking with a guy named Blaze Hemingway, and Blaze is is uh, a screenwriter and a playwright and a, and an author, um, really kind of multi hyphenate. But he's got this really specific skill set, which is. Um, He's an incredible writer for animation, and he worked um, at Disney Animation for a long time in the story department, where he was um, sort of a script fixer um, on everything from like Tangled to Wreck-It Ralph to Zootopia to Big Hero 6. Um, And, uh, you know, he's at Pixar. He's doing like, you know, he's that guy. And we started talking to him about this idea. And we were like, look, we think it needs to have vehicles. We think it needs to have, you know, characters that are broken down within different factions. We think it needs to have, you know, this sort of like arcing good versus evil power struggle system. What does that look like? And he said, here's the problem with a vehicle concept. Here's the problem when racing is your concept. And it's like racing isn't enough to drive a story because when someone loses, there aren't really any major consequences like the stakes Mm. just aren't there and he said but what if you know part of the reason cars works is when he loses it's like it's his own fault (laughs) right it's like it's like it it's it's not about whether he wins or loses it's about how he views himself um sure but uh you know he was like what what happens if we take this racing idea, but instead of racing for glory, they're racing for political power. So we created this world called Omega. And on the, the planet of Omega, instead of developing a warrior culture like we have on Earth where people you know, fight wars and power struggles that are kind of based on physical force. They have a racing culture. So, you know, disputes are decided through competition and speed. And so like way back in the day, this was, you know, two tribes meet on an open field and they're disputing over the territory. The fastest runner from each tribe races across the field and whoever wins, wins that conflict. Uh, You take that sort of impetus and you throw it 30,000 years of development into the future and you have this highly technical society that's racing in these super cool high tech vehicles. Um, and they're racing for all kinds of reasons, but um, at, the, at the highest level, they're racing for political power. And um, once every three years on this planet, there's something called the Omega Race. And the Omega Race is every single nation on this planet nominates one person they call the proxy runner to race on behalf of their nation in this 21-day multi-stage race all the way around the world. And the winner of the omega race then gets to nominate the sovereign of the world so whoever wins the omega race becomes the absolute ruler of the planet for the next three years um and it's this big kind of gonzo fun anime concept um that gives you the stakes to the story and it gives you um the ability to tour through all kinds of incredible countries and landscapes and you have all these different societies coming together and butting heads and there's all this sort of like political subterfuge that goes on it's sort of like a speed racer game of thrones uh by way of like avatar the last airbender concept Mm -hmm. and we just thought that was awesome and so we started poking around with it and we were like okay so if somebody's going to create an nft what does it have to look like And what we did is we'd done all this work in building this this television show. Um, We built out what we call a show Bible, which is a, you know, it's a 30 page document that says like, these are the characters, these are the conflicts, this is season one, this is season two, this could be season three, four, five, Um, like all of that stuff into one place. And we said, okay, what happens if we go and we take it and we pitch it as an NFT? Um, So I did that. I went, I, I started talking to financiers and I started talking to all these people in the NFT space that I'd connected with. And um, eventually ended up talking to a group called Metaversal, which is an incredible—they're um, a—they're a venture studio, an NFT venture studio, a three venture studio out of New York. Um, they've got a fifty million dollar fund and just a real passion for using NFTs and using the technology in new and novel ways. They decided to come in and they back us, and so we went and we actually uh, then brought on a. Uh, an animation house called Sun Creature based in Copenhagen and uh, started doing a lot of design work as if we were going to design a television show. Um, and we brought in uh, about 20 artists for about six months and we sat down and we designed these characters and we designed the world and we designed these vehicles. And we just sort of figured out you know, what the fabric of this universe was and we, got, we developed a look for it. And it was really important to us that the look we develop Works in animation, and it works in 2D, and it works in 3D, and it works on uh, you know comic book pages, and it works in uh, you know it, it will work in gaming, like all of that stuff. We had to design it in such a way that it could be translated, and mm-hmm. then um, and then once we had those assets, we sat down and said, okay, now let's send that to the comic artist and launch as a comic book, and let's send that to um, back to the art team and build out an NFT collection. And um, we did both of those things simultaneously. And the idea here being like, this is how we've gone through and put in all of this sort of background work and all of this sort of deep lore and creative exploration and refinement that goes into eventually pitching this as a television show, pitching this as a game universe, pitching this as a as a realized piece of global franchise entertainment in a way that you don't get um, from most of the projects that exist in the NFT space, to be frank. Um and and the reason we do this is because it pays dividends long term to know what it is that you want to do. So that when those opportunities arise and someone says, Hey, do you want to make an animated show? And when those opportunities arise and someone says, Hey, do you want to make a game? You can turn around and say yes. And I think it should look like XYZ. Um right. So
1: instead of the traditional perhaps call it the film and TV web two version. Where you might have a property or a piece of IP or a project and someone then says, hey, I think we should convert this into something and you say yes and then you start that process there. You guys have gone ahead, done the legwork and put in the the time to think through, okay, what does this look like if we're to be approached for or or if we wanted to create an animated show or a comic book or any of those other aspects of this universe and so that's kind of being built into the DNA of runner.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just that, you know, when people approach you can have a good answer for them. It's also so that they will approach. Like I am the person who calls, like I cold call people all the time when I read a book or I read a post or I read, you know, an article whatever it is that I think would make an interesting movie. Um and I I reach out to people and I say, "Hey, have you ever thought about adaptations?" Like that is the basis of our job is we do that with scripts and books and screenplays. Like that is so much identifying the right properties is so much of the work we do. And if a property doesn't have, you know, that sort of story ethos built into it, um, unless it is, you know, I look at like Lego or, you know, Barbie is about to come out unless it is something that is so big like that, that you can sort of wrap your head around it and selling it to, to the world when there's no necessarily defined story to it, um, it's really hard to retrofit IP into a story world and make that attractive. Because, um, you know, even if you look at something like, you know, I, I've talked to a number of people actually about making like a board Apes project because it was like, hey guys, like what can we go pitch it as a, Apecoin AIP and like go get the funding and go do this properly. Um, <laughs> sure, and like I, like I think we could, right? But I've I've soft pitched it to a couple of other execs that I know around town, and the response is always like, "Yeah, but why do people care? Like, who is who's going to go see this? And and is this is this only for the people that love board apes, or does it reach an audience beyond the beyond the holders? And um, you know, I think it's a fair question, and that's something that we've really tried to keep in. Focus as we're building out this NFT collection is it's like, yes, we want to succeed in Web three and we want to have a passionate fan base within Web three, but we definitely also, you know, success in Web three is five thousand holders, you know, ten thousand holders. Like it's it's not very many people. It's a really small ecosystem, and success in I mean, even even minor success, like in television, like if you're not getting a million viewers a week, you get canceled, right? Like right, right. It, it's a much different bar. And, and a real success is getting, you know, 3 million viewers, 5 million viewers, 10 million viewers. And the goal here was like, how do we build something and launch it in Web3 that is ready for prime time, that's ready to go out and be put onto a service and entertain people who either don't know or do not care that it was ever a Web3 project and can look at it and say, hey, I like this show because it makes me laugh or I like this show because it's fun to watch when I get home from work or whatever it is. And some of those people will just be casual fans forever. And that is fine. And some of those people will become deeper fans and they'll understand that it was a Web3 project first, and then they'll come back, and they'll jump into the discord and they'll start talking to the creators and they'll start, you know, involving themselves with the community and they'll become a holder and all of that. And they'll lead people back to Web3. And I think understanding that, you know, when people talk about bringing more people into Web3, they're always talking about ways to on-ramp people specifically into the Web3 side of Web3. Um, and I think. Before, before that becomes a real reality, I think just onboarding people into Web3 projects who don't even understand or want to understand that it's a Web3 project is actually a pretty good way to bring people into the Web3 world, also. But you've got to give them something to engage with that they'd want to engage with anyway. Totally. Totally. That's been sort of a, a large focus of um, how we look at this.
1: And it, it seems, too, that in the way that you mentioned Disney being this really, uh, and I find that a kind of a fascinating spin on how to view a company like that you know as a merchandising company first and then having its creative ip essentially act as advertisements and a a much more uh evolved way of storytelling but essentially that its its stories are are perhaps advertising its characters you know in the example of, of cars and stuff like that so in a way it's kind of it sounds like you guys are using Web3 to create a similar model, except in this time, instead of merchandising specifically, perhaps it's around, as you mentioned, engagement and bringing, creating that feedback loop of viewers and, and engagers and fans and, and having that kind of perpetuate the system for this project specifically.
0: Yeah, and that's certainly, that's certainly a helpful piece of the system, um, bringing people back into Web3. You know, we do have also you know, specifically merchandising ideas you know, in the long run and gaming ideas and all these other platforms that we could be on. But I think um, that sort of feedback loop is uh, often overlooked. And, and one of the reasons that we wanted to launch this in Web3 is so that we could, we could you know, do our best to create that feedback loop because so much um, when you go and work at a studio, For instance, you end up, first of all, you sell everything. You sell not just the rights to your movie, but you sell the rights to the merchandise and you sell the rights to sequels and you sell, you know, you sell everything when you sell an idea, um, a brand new idea, at least. And um, then you end up in development hell, where you get put into uh, a system where you've got executives giving you notes on a story um, and then giving you more notes on a story and then, you know, giving you more notes on, a story, <laughs> and, and then deciding that they're not going to make your story this year, they're going to make one of the other 12 projects that they're working on instead. And um, it's nothing to do with your story. It just has to do with, you know, that story has Bradley Cooper or something, you know what I mean? Like that's right, the sort right. of thing that you're working on. And, um, and then they keep all of it anyway. <laughs> and so you, the, the idea was like, okay, can we circumvent this system? at all and it's something you know my boss had really direct experience with this when he was doing the hunger games so like that book um most books weirdly enough sell for movies before they're published so we get everything pre-publication typically um but the hunger games for whatever reason was not one of those books that sold pre-publication and he actually pulled it off of a shelf in like a hudson news in an airport and started reading it and um said this book is great let's go make this into a movie and um everybody passed you know Universal passed, Warner Brothers passed, Disney passed, like all this place places passed. They're like kids killing ki- kids, like it's never going to work. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, they licked that process took a couple of months probably, and they licked their wounds. And then they went and they sent it to a B level studio, which was Lionsgate. Um, which remember at the time, like Lionsgate had made some horror movies, and they were, I think they were merged. They might have merged with Summit at that point, so they had some Twilight right. money, but they weren't like um they were not a major player in the same way that these other studios are um and they got a hold of the book and they were taking a long time to think about it and in that period between when everybody else passed and Lionsgate hadn't yet passed um the book sales started to pick up and we're not talking huge numbers you know we're talking 10,000 copies you know 20,000 copies like not not nothing crazy crazy but it's enough of an indication for them to suddenly look at this property and go wait a second something is happening here there is a power here. And then they fast track the development and the production of that movie immediately. Right. It's like that little bit of momentum is enough to push a project from this sort of sit forever development. Nobody can decide whether or not it's real. To mm-hmm. we're gonna spend a hundred million dollars on this and we're gonna put it into production right now. You know, the script might not be ready, but we're gonna start anyway. Like that sort of mode and um that's how we view this web3 this web3 launch It's like can we launch something inside of web3 and get those first 10,000 fans can we get that first little bit of momentum that allows us to turn around and go to a studio and say hey look we have this property we've got this energy behind us we have this team in place we already know what the answer is when you ask us what season 1 is going to be and what season 2 is going to be and we already have some of this design work done you know pull the trigger, right? Pull the trigger, let us control it creatively. Um, It's going to work out for everybody. There's a lot less guesswork involved here than there is normally. And this is going to be a great great deal for you and a great deal for us. And that for us is like sort of the North Star um, of where this project can go and should go. And then of course, for the holders, like then you have this project that ends up not just being created, but being created at the highest level and being released On a major platform. And um, that will necessarily drive people back to the original project. And I think that's sort of the feedback loop that we're talking about. Um, And and to set us apart from so many other web through sort of film projects is we're not looking for financing from the community. We're looking for energy and we're looking for that fandom. Um, Mm. because Mm. because the financing is going to come from a feature, you know, from a from a studio, um, which is a different, you know, that's available to us because of business we're in and because of the track record we have, I realize it's not available to everyone, but because it's available to us, um, I think it's just worth noting because it sets us, you know, so far apart from um what might be more like the Kickstarter model.
1: Sure. And what's interesting about this path that you guys are embarking on too is it's almost like it reminds me of when Netflix first started with original content and mm-hmm you had essentially the the you were coming to them with the hey here's the team it was it wasn't hey here's a script necessarily and we want to make this it's hey here's the script oh and here's the director and here here's the team behind it and here you know it was it was just kind of as you mentioned taking the a little bit of the guesswork out of that process and and it seems like what you guys are trying to do with this project is the next step of that Saying, hey, in addition to the creative team and the idea and the story and the vision, we also have an audience. And that seems to be, it's almost like taking what social media has done with individuals and applying that to a specific project in in advance of it being released or created fully.
0: Absolutely. Um, And I can tell you. I mean, those early days of Netflix were very fun. So our movie First Match was, I think, the second project ever directly funded by Netflix. Um, and it was a $1.1 $1. $1 million movie that we made um, that was, you know, a first-time director, first-time actress, very, very uh, early career, Yaya Abdul-Mateen. Like, it was uh, just a real labor of love from everyone. And nobody in the world is going to make that movie except Netflix and Netflix made it because they said, Hey, this movie speaks to a demographic that we struggle to get subscribers for. And so we are going to make it because we can find the audience for this movie. Um, which was really, you know, it was a fun and exciting time because, you know, the movie business had been contracting for so long. You know, the studios used to make 35 movies a year and now they make 10 movies a year. And that, sort of reduction came from the low end movies, the, the art house stuff and the mid-level movies, the like, you know, adult thrillers and that type of stuff. Um, and Netflix came back and said, Hey, we're going to make the art house movies and we're going to make the adult thrillers and we're going to make these sort of like $30 million mid budget, um, great scripts. And, um, and some of that was because they believed in it. And some of that was because, you know, there was sort of this stink on Netflix at the time where it was like the 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 big league stars didn't want to go there. You know, like Sandra Bullock is a she's a box office draw. She is not a streaming person. Um, but we made this movie with uh, with Will Smith. We made Bright. And when we brought that out, we brought it out as a package to the whole town. And we had the script and we had David Ayer, the director, and we had Will Smith and we had us as producers. And um, we sent it into every studio one weekend and. Uh, the next week, there was a bidding war between, I don't remember exactly who it was, but um, Netflix came in, and they came in at a higher budget than everybody else, and they gave us guaranteed production language, and they said, if you are not in production by, I think it was like October 1st of this year, which is probably six months out, they're like, we will mm-hmm. pay each of you a million dollars. Like There will be a penalty for non-performance, um, and we went, wow. we went immediately into production on that movie, and you can do that if you have the right leverage. And, um, that was, uh, that was a, that was a wild west days of Netflix. That's maybe an entirely different podcast, but, um, that was <laughs> like that movie was $120 million and it was basically an indie movie. Like Netflix made the producing deal and the, the Will Smith deal and the director deal and the script deal. And then they looked at us and said, y'all better hire a lawyer to do the rest of this. And and like, that's wow. like when you make, when you make a studio movie, typically they have somebody from their business affairs department who handles every single, right, right, right. So the, you know, the crew and the below the line and um, all of that, but also like every single actor and uh, you know, all of the residuals and whatever else it's like, it all goes through their business affairs department. They keep a very close watch on it. And Netflix basically did what, uh, what an independent movie does, which is like, go retain production council and like, you know, give us a binder of all the deals when you're done with them. Um, which was frankly an insane, an insane way to make that movie, but, uh, very fun. And, um, they worked that way for, you know, about another year after that. Um, though it evolved really, really quickly into what it is today, which is much, much more like a traditional studio model.
1: Do you think that experience has helped, you know, again, having basically to, to control, as you just mentioned, the, the legal aspects of that film in, in a way that typically it's, it's not, it doesn't fall under your, just, your, just, your jurisdiction as producers, excuse uh, me. It, it um, does
0: though. Cause like when we go make, for instance, we went and made right after that, we made it And that was an independently financed production where um, we also retained production council and kind of handled it ourselves, but it was at a much more modest, you know, like 12, or $14 million budget. Um, and that's, that's typical of the smaller projects. But it is very atypical of the larger projects so um, it was definitely a learning experience I think for everyone involved
1: gotcha and, and and on that tip, does it do you think that that experience has helped when putting together these pieces for runner in, in the sense of okay, hey, we have to create the infrastructure to build a community, have the you know the discord open, have the Uh like does it does it it,
0: Yeah. So the you know the film industry working as a producer is effectively working as a as a startup founder full time. Um because every single movie is its own company. Um quite literally actually it's its own LLC, but it's also um (laughs) you know it starts it starts with three people or four people in an incubator and it's just a script and an idea and a little bit of a vision. And you're hiring, you know, your top talent, you're getting your your Will Smith of the world or whoever it is. Um, And then you're turning around and you're going to finance and you're saying, all right, guys, you know, here's the roadmap. Here's the plan. Um, Here are the elements we've got involved. And, you know. In, in the startup world, it's like, check it out. Here's our CEO. Here's our CTO. Here's a little bit of a proof of concept, you know, like this go to market strategy. And in the mm-hmm. film world, it's just like, hey, guys, here's our script. Here's our movie star. Here's our director. Um, here's a little bit of like how we see this playing out. And here's, you know, the, the sort of the rough outlines of a budget. What do you think? Um, and they come in and they decide to put the money against it. And um then you go really, really rapidly, you start scaling. So, you know, six months out on a movie, you might be four people, and then, you know, you'll, you'll be seven people, and you start to sort of plan out, you know, the budget more in depth and find a casting director and start to really like set, you know, set some people in advance, figure out who, who those people are gonna be. And then you start hiring, you know, heads of department. Those people slowly jump on. And when you're about three months out from a movie, you're typically 200 people, probably, right? At least. Um, maybe 400 when you factor in all of the construction teams if you're building sets. Um, And then you get to the place where you're in production and like right at that moment, you're probably, you know, on our biggest movie, I think we were 650. So you hire that many people in about six months. Um, Mm -hmm. And that sort of ramp up process is a massive, not just like logistical managerial issue, um, but it's also, there's a real learning curve about You know, making the right hires and making decisions in the right way and understanding that, you know, what it is you're going to need, when you're going to need it, how you budget for those needs, um, how you build everything so that you have everything that you need when you need it. Um, Because when you have this huge ramp and this huge payroll, the most expensive thing you can do is waste time. Um, Right. And I think um, all of the lessons that we learned, you know, every movie is a little bit different, but they are all this sort of this big management problem. Um, and you know, having done that, I think as a company, you know, Brian and I, I think we've done it eight times, nine times together now, um, teaches you a lot. And it really, um, it really readied us in a lot of ways for launching in the, uh, the Web3 space. I think the, the learning curve for us in this world has been a lot of the tech, the tech elements. Um, and not just the technology itself, but the, the, you know, the sort of Silicon Valley startup culture is very different from how we work in the, um, the entertainment space. And also in the entertainment space, you know, we're used to being massive projects. Like we are, we are used to getting, you know, the very best of the best. When we go out and hire a cinematographer, we're looking at a list of, you know, maybe 100 candidates, 150 candidates. And um, they're all the best in the world at what they do. Or, or soon to be the best in the world at what they do. Right. Um, <laughs> when we go hire uh, tech people, right? We are more like a tiny free agent on the market with no proven track record. Um, and you know, Google and Facebook and Amazon are hiring all the really good engineers. And so we're used to being the Google or the Facebook or the Amazon in the film world. And it was a very different sort of experience trying to find the right people and recruit the right talent to the project we were doing. It was a lot more sort of. Um, ground floor and uh a lot of just like you know convincing people that we were legit and that we um kind of you know knew something about what we were doing and we had a long-term vision and you know that we get paid on time and all of those different elements (laughs) that um you know people are a little skeptical about and I don't blame them um and I think that was uh very much a different way to work but we've we've landed with an incredible team and um it's been a fun ride
1: in terms of that, Rod, what can we expect, Bryce, from you and the team in the, in the coming months?
0: So um, we've done several issues of the comic book. Um, two of them are released to a really early holders, but none of them are totally public. Um, one of them we've kept completely uh, off the streets so far. Um, we have a public mint coming up in April, in about a week and a half. That's 420. And that will be the launch of our character collection, which is the primary NFT collection for the project. And um, that's really going to be the starting gun for this whole process.
1: Awesome. Well, Bryce, uh, really appreciate the conversation, really appreciate the insight into Runner and uh, into your path to its inception. Uh, Where can people find the project, find you, if they want to check out more information?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You can find us online at omegaxrunner.xyz. You can also find us on Twitter at omegaxrunner. Um, My name is Bryce Anderson. My Twitter handle is Bryce B. Anderson. And you can DM me, I'm on Discord. Um, Look me up online, I'm pretty available. And uh, always happy to talk runner and all things Hollywood. Amazing. Bryce, thanks so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for listening to another episode of Lights Camera Crypto, a podcast produced by Matt Bogart and Decentral Media. Music by Brian Duncan and Kareem Imes. If you enjoyed this experience, be sure to rate and subscribe to our show and to follow at Slattin and at Decentral Media for additional content.